Well, let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Having examined the widely accepted teaching and practice of what is commonly referred to as the sinner's prayer and the altar call, in the time that we have together tonight, I want us to humbly and honestly scrutinize the widely accepted teaching and practice of rededication, as it is commonly called among Christian circles. And putting it in the most simplistic terms, rededication, rededicating one's life to Christ or coming back to the Lord, is a decision made by an individual who professes faith in Jesus Christ to strive to follow Christ more diligently after a long season of living in rebellion toward God. Typically, the general concept of rededication among modern Christian culture includes the public ritual of presenting the person who has, quote, fallen away from the faith before a religious assembly with the declaration that such a person is determined to work harder and do better at becoming or being a Christian. I think it is safe to conclude that the most common instance of rededication involves someone who has made a profession of faith when they were a child or young adult, coming to a place in their life where they feel it would be more suitable to live their life in agreement with the truths and practices of Christianity than to continue living life that has been ruined by their sinful choices. And nine times out of ten, the typical rededication testimony goes something like this. Well, I used to attend church when I was little. My parents dropped me off at vacation Bible school every summer. I attended and graduated from a Christian school. I used to faithfully attend the church's youth group. I went to summer youth camp every year. I grew up in a Christian home. I prayed a sinner's prayer. I walked an aisle. I got baptized. And then for some reason, I quit going to church. I quit reading my Bible. I quit praying as I should. And I started doing things that I shouldn't. And for the last 10, 15, 20, 25 years... I've not been living for the Lord, so now I am deciding to, quote, rededicate my life to the Lord. This is the practice that I want to honestly and humbly analyze from Scripture. And listen, I know because many of us have been taught to believe one thing regarding this topic that this topic is a very personal, emotional, and sensitive topic for some. We have been encouraged to believe that the doctrine of rededication is the doctrine of Scripture. We've been led to believe that it is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. I know that the traditions we've come to accept are extremely difficult to examine and investigate. So that being said, I want to clarify here at the beginning of my sermon that my purpose in teaching on this particular subject is not, is not, is not to attack any person's character, to belittle anyone's experience, or to set myself up as a self-righteous know-it-all. My purpose in teaching on these subjects that have become accepted as tradition and have been accepted as sacred cows is to challenge us to test all things by the truths of God's Word. Truly, this is my driving aim and primary purpose. My intention in preaching is not to stir up controversy for the fun of it. My purpose in preaching is not to poke fun at others because I have nothing better to preach about. God forbid. May it never be. 
My singular determination in these series of messages is to hold up all of our beliefs, traditions, and practices up to the light of God's Word so that we can determine whether they are doctrinally sound and practically helpful. So my sincere longing has been the words of Paul, Romans chapter 2. Let God be true and every man a liar. My desire is to let God's word prevail over the teachings and the traditions of men. Now, before we examine this particular belief and practice from Scripture, I think it's helpful if I begin by fastening an important hermeneutical principle to the forefront of your minds. You say, what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the method of interpreting what the Bible says properly. Now, don't lose me here because I believe this one truth will help us more than anything else in the consideration of all these controversial topics that we've been considering over the last several weeks. So here is a helpful hermeneutical principle that you need to keep at the forefront of your mind in the examination of everything. Here it is. If you're taking notes, write it down. I'll repeat it twice. It is absolutely vital that we read the objective truths of the Bible into our subjective experiences rather than reading our subjective experiences into the objective truths of the Bible. It is absolutely vital that we read the objective truths of the Bible into our subjective experiences rather than reading our experiences into the objective truths of the Bible. Now, affirming the same truth by way of negative command, let me say it this way. We must never read our subjective experiences into the objective truths of the Bible on the contrary, we must read the objective truths of the Bible into our subjective experiences. Does this make sense? So what I am saying is, as we read and study Scripture, rather than imposing what we feel, what we think, what we've always thought was true, what we've done, what others say and what we've personally experienced into the Scripture, because that's what we like the best, that's what works, or perhaps that's what a majority of people believe, we must honestly examine what Scripture says and only believe and practice what Scripture teaches. So the common response of, well, I think, I feel and I know, but needs to be contested and corrected with, thus saith the Lord. The common response to biblical teaching of, well, I know, but needs to be contested with, what does God say in His Word? So let me show you what I mean as it relates to the popular teaching and practice of rededication. God, through Paul, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. So someone says, well, you see, this is a nice statement of Paul, but I feel that it's a little bit too extreme. I think Paul does not really mean what he is saying. I mean, I can speak to my own experience, and I can tell you what I have seen in the lives of others 
And it certainly doesn't mesh with what Paul says here in this text. When I was little, when I was a young adult, I made a profession of faith, and there really wasn't much of a change. Old things did not pass away, and old things did not become new. So I guess Paul's words do not relate to what I've experienced in my life and what many others I know have experienced in their lives. So let's go back to the hermeneutical principle. This is precisely what I'm speaking of as it relates to our understanding of biblical truth. We must never read our subjective experiences into the objective truths of the Bible. On the contrary, we must take the objective truths of the Bible and read them into our subjective experiences. So let's just keep things simple. You know that I like simple. I like thinking through things logically, sensibly. The Bible is easy to understand. And the simple truth about what Paul says here is either what he is saying under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is true or it is not. There's no other option. Either what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 has been given to us by inspiration of God and is objective gospel reality, or it is the fickle opinion of a confused man. Those are the only two choices. Either what is said in the text ought to be believed and preached authoritatively and implemented in our gospel counseling, or it must be presented with various conditions attached to it. I truly believe it's really that simple. Are we going to let God's divine word speak to our beliefs, our traditions, our practices? Or are we going to stubbornly squeeze our beliefs, practices, and traditions into the Bible? Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and our experiences submitted to the truth of Scripture. Let God be true and our church traditions exposed and even ripped apart if need be, if they don't align up with the pure, perfect, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Either 2 Corinthians 5.17 is Bible truth or it is not. Now, in the examination of this widely accepted belief and church tradition, referred to as rededication, In the remainder of our time, I want us to examine from this text and from the whole of Scripture, first, what it means to be in Christ, second, what the process of sanctification involves, and then third, I want to give several sincere concerns with this relatively new teaching and practice of what I am calling ceremonial rededication. So let's establish first, from this text, what biblical salvation is. God, Almighty, the Creator, the One who is infinitely wise, the One we are accountable to, God says through Paul, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, He is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And the question we need to begin with is, what does it mean to be in Christ? How do we know the answer? Well, we don't answer the question by saying, well, I feel, I think, I believe this is what it means to be in Christ. We answer the question by searching out the whole of Scripture and letting the whole of Scripture interpret the meaning of God's Word so that we can declaratively say God's Word firmly states that this is what it means to be in Christ. Now, if truth be told, I could stand up for hours tonight and give you Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse from Genesis to Revelation, and give you a thorough explanation of what it means to be in Christ. 
I could, but I won't because I want you to come back on Wednesday night. I won't give you the Puritan preaching experience. I won't give you the Apostle Paul preaching till midnight till somebody falls out of the window experience. We'll save that for another time. But what I want to do is I want to give you the simple biblical definition of what it means to be in Christ that has been genuinely understood and preached through the long line of men we deem to be our spiritual forefathers. So I want to give you the biblical definition that has been held to firmly throughout the centuries of those who are our spiritual forefathers, such as Matthew Henry, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, William Carey, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Leonard Ravenhill, and so on. These men throughout the centuries heralded one truth that lined with gospel preaching revealed in Scripture. And so I want to look at that tonight. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, let's look at the next two verses following verse 17. Verse 18 and 19 says that to be in Christ means that God reconciles sinners to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Let's interpret Scripture with Scripture. Let's let the Bible define the Bible. Verse 18, what does this mean? And all things are of God. We're speaking of that which is spiritual, that which relates to the gospel, that which relates to faith. All things are of God. God has provided the way of salvation. Who hath reconciled us, speaking to believers, Those who are truly in Christ, God hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And notice that relational mentioning there. God drawing men to himself not imputing their trespasses unto them, there's forgiveness, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And this is further defined in verse 21, as Paul declares that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on the behalf of those who believe on him, so that God's people might become the righteousness of God in him. So now pausing here for a moment, we must understand that these statements of Paul assume several things of those who are outside of Christ, and it assumes several things of those who are now in Christ who were at one time outside of Christ. All right, Stay, stay with me. Such statements assume that naturally we were at enmity with God. Such statements suppose that we are not inherently united with God. If God has to reconcile others to himself, it then speaks to the fact that others are separated from God. So, despite popular belief, you are not born God's child. Well, look at this precious, innocent little baby Oh, surely they are God's precious child. No, they are a viper in diapers. They are in Adam. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That child must repent and believe the gospel to be saved. That child's not innocent. That child's full of sin. They have a nature of sin. They're not automatically in God's family. Such statements of Paul infers that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Naturally, we're all outside of Christ. We are all incapable of 
obtaining eternal life in our own power. Paul's statements assume that the process of salvation involves a radical change, a transformation, a conversion, and a new life with God, a relationship with Him. This is the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So the question we need to answer now is, does this particular teaching agree with the teaching of all of Scripture? Is this a unique teaching within one chapter of the whole Bible, or is this truly gospel truth? Well, let's zoom out and think about other gospel declarations given to us in God's Word. The Bible does indeed declare in Psalms, in Jeremiah, in Romans, that all men are lost. All men are cut off from God. We are all as sheep going astray, following our own way. The Bible declares that in Adam, in our sin, we are spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually confused, spiritually careless about the ways of God, and spiritually dead. The Bible declares that in our sin, we are in bondage to sin. We are chained by our wicked actions. The Bible declares that in our sin, we are under the influence of the evil one. The Bible declares that in our sin, we naturally love the world and the things of the world. In our sin, we walk according to the course of this world, fulfilling the desires of our flesh. In our sin, we love to drink down iniquity like water. It's our natural inclination. That's all we know. The Bible declares that without Christ, we are living in darkness. Our mouths are full of cursing. Our feet are quick to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in our ways. And there is no fear of God before our eyes. The Bible declares that in Adam, the things of God are foolishness to us. We cannot rightly understand the truths of God because God's word is not in us. You can say, I feel, I think, all you want, but the Bible declares man as evil, against God, lost, depraved of the wicked one. So what is needed? Paul tells us. Jesus tells us. The other apostles tell us. The prophets tell us. What is needed is spiritual life given by God. What is needed is a new heart, a new nature, a new affections, new desires. You see, we need to be released from the bondage of sin, and we cannot do that ourselves. We need to be delivered from the power of darkness. We need to be taken out of the world and placed into Christ. We need someone to bring us to God. We need an advocate. We need a mediator to go to holy God. How can sinful men go to a holy God? We need someone. We need someone to resurrect us from the dead. And this happens through the new birth, that which we call regeneration. And this is God drawing us to himself. This is God opening our heart. God giving us faith to believe. God forgiving us of our sin. God adopting us into his family. And God giving us a genuine love for him and a burning desire to seek first the kingdom of God and Christ's righteousness. This is biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is a conversion. It's a one-time act of reconciliation that God accomplishes on the behalf of His people. Listen, salvation is not about you cleaning up your life. 
Salvation is not about you being more faithful to pray, you being more faithful to read your Bible, you being more faithful to go to church. Salvation is not about you developing more modest convictions. Likewise, salvation is not about you intellectually believing Bible facts about God and Jesus. Salvation is not merely about you affirming your belief in the existence of God. It's not about you believing that Jesus died on a cross and shed his blood for your sins. Even the devils believe in God and tremble. Even the devils know that they are great sinners. Even the devils know that Jesus shed on his blood on the cross and rose again. Are they saved? No. Have they been reconciled to God? No. What's missing? What's missing is life. What's missing is a conversion. What's missing is God reconciling them to himself. You see, salvation is about God bringing sinners to a place of repentance. And through which Paul says in this text, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, God radically transforms everything about you. He transforms your relationship toward God, your relationship towards others, your relationship towards sin, your relationship toward the world, your relationship toward thinking right and thinking wrong, your goals, your aspirations, and so forth. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is what biblical salvation is. That's Bible. And it's all over the Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation. Pictures. Illustrations. Affirmations. Declarations. All painting. One cohesive statement about what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Now, closely associated with this first truth is the second truth that I want us to consider, which is what biblical sanctification is. So having examined what it means to be in Christ, let's trace out from the Bible what the process of sanctification involves. So now the question is, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of growing in holiness. Well, what does it mean to grow in holiness? To grow in holiness means to grow in loving the things that God loves and grow to hating the things that God hates. Sanctification is the process of spiritual maturity. God has birthed you into his kingdom. You are a babe in Christ. You do not stay a babe in Christ. God feeds you. God matures you so that you grow up in the faith. You're like a seed planted in his garden, but you don't remain a seed. You grow up, Psalm 1, to be a tree by the rivers of water that produces, by the way, good fruit. That which gives off bad fruit is a bad tree, That which is of God, which is a good tree, produces good fruit. By your fruits ye shall know them. John said, don't talk to me about professing faith in Moses and Abraham. Bring forth fruit, therefore meat of repentance. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And it's important to recognize under this point that the Bible always assumes That when God places someone in Christ, when God reconciles a sinner to himself, that God will continue his sanctifying work through the entire course of the believer's life. Let me give you scripture to back this up. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Paul says, being confident, being assured knowing without a shadow of doubt of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, speaking of salvation, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. God has started the work. He's still working to perfect you, to make you more like his son. Philippians chapter 2, next chapter, verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved 
as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we understand that Paul is not teaching us that salvation is by works. Paul's already established that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not of ourselves, lest we should boast. It's a gift of God. But he's saying, those of you who have received salvation, you need now to work that salvation out in the day-to-day life because it's God that works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And then 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 2, God's people, Peter says, have been elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto something, unto obedience, he says. You've been saved, you've been chosen, you've been placed in the beloved. You're not a hearer only, but you're a doer. The man who builds his house upon a rock is the one who hears and does. And he does because he delights to do God's will. His heart has been changed. So Peter says, you've been chosen by God through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. And then likewise in the same chapter, 1 Peter 1.5, Peter makes it clear that those who God saves, God keeps. Peter says, you are kept Not by your spiritual performances. You're kept not by your personality. You're kept not by your prayers, your Bible reading. You are kept by the same power that has saved you. You're kept by the Spirit of God. This is Romans. Paul says, nothing shall separate the believer from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Is there anything that can separate us from Christ, death, persecution, the works of the evil one? No. If God be for us, who can be against us? It's God that justifies, and it's God who sanctifies through his keeping. Let's go back to our text this morning. Peter says to those who have been called unto salvation by Jesus Christ, God perfects. God establishes, God strengthens, God settles. So in other words, what God starts, He finishes. God does not birth babies into His kingdom and then throw them out into the world. God does not abandon His children after they come to faith in Christ. Where there is true spiritual life, there will always be an ongoing work of true spiritual growth. If one has genuinely taken up their cross and followed Christ, they will, as Jesus says, continue to follow Him. And just so that we're clear on what we're talking about in sanctification, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about sinlessness. I'm not talking about the believer not struggling with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The believer does falter and fail. The true Christian does sin in thought, in word, and in deed every day. However, the Bible makes it clear that those who are truly in Christ are dead to sin. That means that they're dead to their old way of living. They're dead to the world, meaning then that the power of sin that once reigned and ruled their life has been broken down. Do we not find this truth in the conversion of Zacchaeus? Remember the wee little man? Remember the tax collector, the publican, who was known to put a little extra money in his pockets, lying and cheating and deceiving? Zacchaeus, believing on Christ to be the Son of God, restored that which he had stolen to others. There was a change. There was a transformation. There was an altering of his thinking. There was a desire to do what is right. 
Do we not find this truth in the conversion of those saved at Pentecost? Well, Acts chapter 2 records that those who gladly received the word continued in their faith. They didn't fall away. 3,000 gloriously saved, 3,000 continuing with the church in the apostles' doctrine, in prayer, and the breaking of bread and fellowship. And likewise, this is what we find in the conversion story of Saul of Tarsus, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, and the members of the churches that the apostles write to. The Bible constantly and boldly presumes that those who've come to faith in Christ will have a burning desire to live their life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, I did not say that they will become angelic overnight. I did not say all their sins will fly away within a week. But I said they will have a heart that has the flame of a burning desire to do God's will. And it will not be pressured. It will not be manipulated. It will not be coaxed. And it will not be bribed by others. The true believer that is saved and is going through the process of sanctification will not live in a perpetual state of willful disobedience, willful stubbornness against God. They will not continue worshiping the gods and idols they did before they came to Christ. They will not live the majority of their life as if God doesn't exist. That's contrary to the Scriptures. We don't find that anywhere. Come to Christ so you can go back into the world and live as if Christ doesn't make any difference. So what's the purpose of being a Christian? What does the gospel do? It's weak. God's weak, I guess. Right? Being a true Christian means that we will not habitually live as if the Lord is not Lord. No, the true believer will live as if Jesus is the Lord of their life. And if they don't, the Bible says, they will be lovingly chastened by God. God, by His Spirit, will cause the true believer to be bothered and troubled by their wayward ways and will bring such an erring one to a place of repentance within a short amount of time. Now, that's subjective, I know, but it won't be forever. It won't be 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years. I can't define short because there's nothing in the Bible that defines that. But if you belong to Christ and you turn your back on Christ, like Jonah God will come for you. If you are one of his sheep and you leave the sheepfold, Christ will leave the 99 and bring you back. He will scoop you up if he has to. Give you a spanking and bring you back to the fold. How do we know this? We know this because the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, speaking of salvation, personal experience through the new birth, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines, he scourges. And likewise, the Bible states, if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews 12, 8. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things, let's define this. Old habits, old desires, old sins, old idols, old friends, old views about God, old apathetic tendencies toward God's Word, an old infatuation with the things of this world, old pride, old selfishness are passed away. And behold, not some things, not most things, but all things, what does this mean? The purpose of life, the feelings of the heart, and the principles of our actions are become new. We're a new creation. God had to speak all things into existence ex nihilo, out of nothing. But in salvation, God takes this mass of sin and recreates it by placing sinners into Christ. The idea that Paul is preaching on here is 
that those who are in Christ have been undeniably changed by God. The principle is that there is a new life with new spiritual senses, new affections, new appetites, new desires, new aspirations, a new relationship with God, a new opinion of the world, a new appreciation of His church, and a new fixation to His will. Old things passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. So this then leads us to my third main point, which is several sincere concerns with the teaching and practice of ceremonial rededication. And my first main concern is the same concern I've had with everything we've been looking at. My first main concern is that such a teaching and such a practice is not mentioned in the Bible. There is no teaching or example of rededication in Scripture, rededication as we define it. We don't find any instance of the prophets, Jesus, or the apostles encouraging others to rededicate their lives to the Lord by coming forward and letting the church know about it. Nor do we find any allowance for walking away from the faith for 20 years and then coming back to it. There is not one illustration. You can correct me if I'm wrong. There's not one illustration of a child receiving Christ when they are little and then recommitting themselves to Christ before a church later. We just don't find it. There's nothing in the Bible that supports this summer youth camp philosophy of receiving Christ, going back into the world, rededicating the next summer, going back into the world, rededicating, go back to sin, rededicating, and starting the process over. There's no theological truth of being placed in Christ, being taken out of Christ, being placed back into Christ, being taken out of Christ, and being placed back into Christ. Yet, this is what is commonly believed and practiced. And sadly, alongside of the sinner's prayer and the altar call, we've come to accept the teachings of rededication as a cardinal Bible doctrine. Most Christians have come to accept the doctrine of rededication as biblical and normal. We think when somebody strays and goes out into the world and lives in sin, what they need to do is rededicate. We've been conditioned to think that way. So this is problem number one that I have with it. There, there's no example, there's no teaching of what we practice, what is commonly called rededication in the Bible. My second main problem with this is that this practice, this teaching of rededication, distorts the true gospel. And getting more specific, I think it is important to recognize that the doctrine of rededication can lead others to believe in two gospels when there is only one gospel. Now think about it. Those who assert that most people will accept Christ and then walk away and then find Christ years later are indirectly believing two saviors, whether they recognize it or not. They are saying, first, we accept the Savior who rescues us from hell, and then later we accept Him as the Savior who rescues us from our sin. First, we accept Jesus as Savior, then we accept Jesus as Lord. First, we get our ticket out of hell, our ticket to heaven, and then we submit to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you see how this divides the person of Christ? It really is two Gospels. Either Jesus is Lord of all or He's not. Either Jesus conquers the heart and changes in salvation or He doesn't. Either the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation or it's not. Is Christ divided, Paul says? Why have we divided Him? Why do we make two Gospels out of one? Are there two Gospels? Are there two moments of salvation? Many times through this tradition, we are encouraging others to believe that there are two messages of faith 
when the Bible says there's only one. And not only that, but we are encouraging others to believe that most professing Christians will not live as if they are Christians. And I think this is a great problem. Many Christians believe that nine people out of ten who believe on Christ will not change, will not grow in sanctification, and will go back to loving the things they once loved before. There's always a little bit of hope. Maybe, maybe, maybe things will be different, but in the back of our mind, we really don't expect people to follow the Savior when they come to faith in Christ. Most Christians believe that nine people out of ten, nine children out of ten, who make a profession of faith when they are little, will abandon God, but be safe from the fires of hell when they die. We think that becoming a new creation only occurs to a select few, not all. Many don't believe God will preserve His sheep, and they don't believe that Christ's sheep will persevere in the faith because of such preservation. And then furthermore, the doctrine of rededication encourages most Christians to unintentionally develop a concept of being a Christian is about doing better and going to church. Now listen to me for a moment. Most of us have enough theological knowledge to combat this on a doctrinal level, but in a practical sense, this is what we are presenting to others. We are teaching them that to become a Christian is about doing better and going to church. So let me illustrate. Usually the story of rededication goes something like this. A child falls away after he makes a profession of faith. Maybe they were raised in a Christian home. They went to a Christian school. And then they fall living 20, 25, 30, 35 years in the world they come back to church, they quit drinking, they quit cussing, they quit smoking, they dress up modestly, and we say, behold, they rededicated their lives to the Lord. When reality is, we never even asked them their testimony. We don't know it of their experience about being born again. But they have a cross necklace. They dress up. They carry a Bible, so, I mean, they must be Christian, right? The cycle is usually like a child grew up in church. They leave church. They come back to church when they're older. And they come back to church because they've had children. And they want their children to experience the same traditions they experienced when they were younger. So they rededicate their life to the church, which is not always salvation. They just get back into that club that they remember was so warm and welcoming. And then their kids pray the prayer, they walk the aisle, they sign a card, and the cycle continues over and over and over. Just trace back the last 50, 60 years. That's what we have. Professing faith in Christ, fall away. Later on, they come back. They, quote, rededicate themselves to the Lord. And often they think they know what they need to do. So they tell the pastor, I need to rededicate myself to the Lord. When they haven't been studying the Bible, and they're not depending upon those who know doctrine to help them in spiritual ways, but that's another story. And they go on and live this cycle, and their kids do the same thing. Listen, many times people come back to church only cleaning up their lives and deciding to be more faithful to services. So this inevitably leads to a focus, I'm saying, on what people do in their life rather than what God has done in their soul. Many times rededication focuses on man's work for God rather than God's work for man. And more times than not, the ceremonial practice of rededicating one's life to Christ is nothing more than rededicating one's commitment to attending church. I've heard it said so many times, I just need to get back in church. I need to get back to church. Church, 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 church. We have a doctrine of churchianity rather than Christianity. Now, Christianity is wedded within the church. Christ loved the church. He died for the church. Don't get me wrong. 
But going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. Going to church doesn't make you reconciled to God. We know this, and yet we still struggle with it. Reading your Bible more doesn't make you a believer. Being more kind to others doesn't make you a follower of Christ. Giving up certain sins doesn't place you into Christ. People can clean up their life. The Mormons do it. The Jehovah's Witness do it. The Catholics do it. Does that mean that God accepts them because you've cleaned up your life? No. See, we're preaching a doctrine of reformation when the Bible's preaching a doctrine of regeneration, reconciliation. Being a Christian, the Bible way, is about being united with God and God doing that for you. It's about God giving you a love for Him. And in that love, you obey Him. You want to tell others about Him. It's not about you doing for God. It's about God in Christ receiving you, rescuing you from yourself, Satan, the world, sin's penalties, sin's power, and one day from sin's very presence. That's salvation. What are my concerns with the widely accepted teaching and practice of ceremonial rededication as we know it? First, There's no teaching or practice of it in the Bible. Second, it distorts the message of the true biblical gospel. And then third, by default, these things confuse people. They confuse people. It confuses the one who has previously professed faith in Christ regarding what true salvation is because we've conditioned them with a message. And it confuses others who are seeking to understand what biblical salvation consists of. Because pastors, churches, and Christians have accepted these things, listen, many well-meaning, many sincere people live life believing that they are in Christ when they are not, or people are truly are in Christ. They've really been born again. They have the marks of being a convert. But they're confused as to the moment they actually came to faith in Christ because we've confused them. And once again, let me tenderly acknowledge that this is something I know many who come among Calvary struggle with or they've struggled with for years. You've struggled with the question, when, if ever, did I come to faith in Christ? When? If ever did God call me to himself? When, if ever, did God turn me, convert me, change me, and give me a new heart? I know this is a personal, sensitive, tender topic. But listen, all of us have to wrestle this out for ourselves. We have to. Why? Number one, for the sake of our own soul. We've got to wrestle it out. Number two, for the sake of being clear in the proclamation of our testimony, in declaring the gospel. And number three, we need to be clear so that we are honest with the Scripture. I made a profession of faith when I was a young child in a junior church setting. How many of you would like to go to heaven? Okay, walk forward, pray the prayer. You've prayed the prayer. Now you are safe. Okay. The worker said, I'm safe, so I'm safe. That's what I thought. And I enjoyed going to church. I enjoyed the cookies and the juice and the quiet seat prizes. I enjoyed my friends. But 10 years pass. As I'm maturing, there's still an attachment to the world. I would conform into the youth group the six weeks of my visiting my dad and him taking us to church, but living in the world. I love the world. My heart didn't desire to do God's will. I didn't deny God existed. I didn't deny that Jesus was the Christ, you see? But there was no change of heart. There there was a desire to go to church when I would even drive past the Baptist church in town, but... I didn't have life. I didn't have that relationship with Christ until age 16, month before my 17th birthday, 
Somebody asked a question I had heard a hundred times before. If you were to die tonight, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? And I knew that if God was good and God would just, he should send me to hell for my sin. I knew I was living a double life. I knew I was living a hypocritical life. I knew that I wasn't really in Christ. The Spirit of God revealed that to me, but I also knew the good news of the gospel. So I cried out to the Lord at that time, and I said, Lord, save me. God, be merciful. And now, looking back, examining things out, I didn't get saved when I was a child. I truly got saved the Bible way when I was 16. I've got to wrestle that out so I can tell you when it was that Christ saved me. Not when it was that I did something for God, but when it was that God did something for me. You see, I got to be clear about that for the sake of my own soul, for the sake of telling others what the gospel is, what it's done in my own life, and so that I will be honest with the scripture. Listen, Paul had a testimony of conversion. And this conversion experience consisted of a before Christ and a after Christ. Yeah? He's a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He's a religious man. He believes in God. He's a Jew. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He has all the credential. He's praise. Still not a Christian. On the road to Damascus, the resurrected Christ humbles him, shows him his wickedness, his sinfulness, changes his heart so Saul says, what do you want me to do, Lord? I'm yours. I'm done living for myself. I recognize my rebellion against you and my need for a Savior. Before Christ, after Christ, did he continue in the faith? Yes, and even others were shocked. But others did see a conversion, a change. How about those at Pentecost? They had a before and after testimony. It included a transformation. God brought these people to Jerusalem. There's his drawing. God sent up a preacher. Peter preached to them. God, by His Spirit, convicted their heart. They were cut to the heart because they knew their sin had put Christ on the cross. They cried out in desperation, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed and God changed them. What about the blind men? Did they have their testimony? They were blind. They heard that Jesus was coming into town. They did everything possible to go where Jesus was, and Jesus recognized their faith. And he said, according to your faith, let it be unto you. And the blind men could see, and those who could see, could see that these blind men could see. The lame man had a testimony. He was crippled, couldn't walk, depending upon others to give him coins and monies to eat. Peter and John, come in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God, and others recognized there was a great transformation. Don't we sing about this amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see a change, transformation. Look at those in the... Gospels who were healed by Jesus show us that these instances are one-time healings. One time. So I'm asking, when, if ever, was that moment for you? I'm not asking you to remember the specific day on the calendar. I'm not asking you to remember the specific time on the clock. I'm asking when, if ever, has God brought you to the end of yourself? When did God break you? You were a stubborn stallion running from God in this world. When did God seek after you? When, if ever, has God caused you to see Christ as your only hope? Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When did God turn you like the prodigal son? That's a salvation instance, that prodigal son. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. It's not about a Christian. It's about a lost person. Lost person 
going into the world, finding no satisfaction in it, understanding he has sinned against God and sinned against others. And so he runs to his father and says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I know you're gracious. And the father's there ready to pick him up and joy over the one who's come back home. That's salvation. When was that in your life? Has there been? And from that moment, you truly loved him. Not perfectly, but persistently. You loved him. And you loved him because you knew he first loved you. And Christ has died for you. I'm not asking when you repeated a prayer. I'm not asking when you walked an aisle. I'm not asking when you signed a decision card. I'm not asking when you were baptized. I'm not asking when did you give up various sins in your life. I'm asking when did you fall at the feet of Jesus Christ, understanding only He can save your soul. When did you call out upon Him in desperation? When did you fall into God's arms like the prodigal son? When was it? You need to know Him. Wrestle it out. And look, if you think I'm being too extreme in my views, I want you to think about what Paul told those who were attending the church in Corinth at the end of 2 Corinthians. Turn over to the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul, having heard the stories, the accounts of how many Church members, how many people within the church who profess Christ were habitually living in sin and rebellion against God? Paul does not say, you know what, I think you're all okay because nobody's perfect, we all struggle. Paul does not say, what you need to do, Christians, is you need to read your Bible more, you need to go to church, you need to rededicate your life to Christ. That's what you need to do. Paul does not say, well, I know most of you are just going through a season and you are just, you're just a carnal Christian, so just accept it, okay? He doesn't say that. Notice what he says, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says, under the inspiration of God, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith, whether you be in Christ, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Now, why do you suppose Paul says this? Well, he says this because there was a disconnect between what they claimed to believe and how they were behaving. Paul says this because for some among the church, there was not an ongoing work of growth or sanctification, which then teaches us that Paul was genuinely concerned that some among the congregation were lost. Some profess Christ with their mouth, but their heart has never been changed. And you can tell it by their hungering and thirsting after sin. So the problem is some of them are outside of Christ and the solution to their problem is not for them to turn over a new leaf. The solution to their problem is not to have a ceremonial rededication. The solution is they need to be born again. They need to be in Christ. They need to repent and believe the gospel, not for the second time, for the first time. You see that? This is the outworking. 2 Corinthians 13, 7. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 is the outworking of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul's not changed his theology as the chapters go on. Paul is still convinced that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And if they are not, then they need to examine themselves and see if they are in the faith. And let me conclude by saying, do you know what true biblical rededication is? Let me just define this for you very simply. 
Here is what true biblical rededication looks like. Rededication is the ongoing reality of a believer daily confessing and repenting of his sins toward God. This is true dedication. True dedication is waking up every morning and saying, God, I don't want to live my life for myself. I want to live my life for you. And by your grace, I'm going to do so today. And then throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, we fall, we fail. The just man falls seven times, but he gets up again. Why? Because he confesses. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's true dedication, rededication. We don't need to walk an aisle. We don't need to sign a card. We don't need to publicly bring ourselves before a church. We need to go straight to God through Christ, rededicating ourselves over and over and over again. That's biblical rededication. The pastor calls for it every time he preaches. Here's the text. How does it apply to your life? Now, in light of that text, confess, repent, and rededicate yourself to the Lord. Yes, you sin in thought, in word, in deed. You get angry, you get bitter, you get frustrated, short-tempered. You look with lust, you become covetous. Oh no, what do we do? We go to God through Christ, asking Him to confess us. And that is the fruit of a true believer. You see? It's the one-time moment of salvation. Repentance leads to a life of repentance. That's biblical rededication.